0: I wanted to just talk to us about an awakening. Now there have been four great awakenings in the United States. And for those of us who come more from a charismatic background, we would know this to be a revival, I assume, a revival. But what we've done is uh, we have looked at the whole concept of a revival from the sense of a big tent We have dates set as to when this revival will start and when this revival will end. And this revival has to do with the amount of people coming and getting healed and um, the amount of hands that go up. And we put a lot of different contexts to the concept of a revival. But I would rather use the terms of an awakening, because this is what we have seen God do Throughout time, but I also want to take the term reformed, rather reforming, be ye transformed. We have to be reformed back into the position God has called us to, the view God has called us to, the the belief God has called us to. Uh, But with this, there are at times awakenings that take place by the hand of God, by the finger of God. By the breath of God, by the Holy Spirit of God. And when I talk about this awakening, we see that awakenings have taken place back uh, in the history of the United States. Uh, We had the very first awakening that was under a man, George Whitfield. He was one of the two men. And then uh, Jonathan Edwards was the second man that just started teaching the word and proclaiming the truths of God with great passion and extreme clarity. And an awakening started to flood the whole entire nation from the top to the bottom and has had such a massive impact upon this Christian nation of ours. Had it not been for these awakenings, this would not have been the Christian nation with the Christian uh, um, constitution that we do have. Or the constitution that's at least rooted within these values. So, I'd like for us to look at an awakening, but not one designed by men, but one that is designed by God, that's orchestrated by God, that is ignited by God, sustained by God, breathed by God, an awakening that can actually impact people um, for God and and people of God in a spiritual way, not just in an emotional way or a relational way. But let me say this, that when you listen to some, maybe Dr. Ryan Rees is a good guy to listen to, um, regarding the awakenings. When you listen to them, you'll realize that with these awakenings, there was a tremendous emotional impact on the church. Every awakening has in its wake an emotional stirring towards God. But it was first the awakening that took place and the emotion that happened after the fact. Whereas to today, when we talk about revivals, oftentimes we have to get excited about it before it happens, right? <laughs> now, come on, everybody, let's get excited about this revival. <laughs> okay. And so oftentimes we see the cart comes before the horse. But as Han just read Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 1 through 11, we see in every spiritual awakening, as we see in this one in Nehemiah, in every single revival, in every single mighty move of God throughout time, we see that the Word of God is proclaimed. The Word of God is proclaimed. We see that the people's hearts are cut to the core. And we see that people fall under a deep conviction of the Holy Spirit. Those are always the signs that accompanied every single awakening. And I wanted to say this to you this morning, that I don't want you to just think about this as a move of God across a nation. But it's a move of God across a church. It's a move of God through a family And it's the move of God within the individual life. And so, what I'm saying to you today is that God is calling every single one of us to an awakening. You want to call it revival? You're welcome to. But God has called you to this kind of awakening that we find within scriptures. And it's always because of the word that has been proclaimed, as we ought to do within our families, at home, and privately. It's always accompanied with people's hearts that are cut to the core because of the word that they hear and that the fact that people are falling under the strong conviction of the Holy Spirit for, for sin. And their experience was that sins that have long been suppressed are suddenly brought to the fore. People can no longer handle the oven that God places them in because their conscience is getting the better of them. Their consciences that used to be silenced are suddenly alive and pricked. Deep, godly sorrow comes upon the individual. Conviction of sin becomes intolerable. The heaviness of heart settles upon a people. And in that heart wrenching experience, people respond in a sense that sin is confessed, repentance runs deep, Jesus is embraced, and forgiveness becomes very evident because people start walking free from the torment of them knowing that they aren't forgiven because they haven't repented. There is no soft or easy awakening. Every awakening that happened was earth-shattering. There's never been an awakening or a true revival that didn't absolutely disrupt the individual's life, the household, all that church, all that society. Because there is no soft or easy awakening. And, And hopefully you would understand that. If this is what you are saying, Jacques, I know. I feel like dry bones. I know that my spiritual walk with God is just rote. It's just, I'm in a rut. My spiritual walk with God is just check a box. My spiritual walk with God is just to mentally ascend to certain truths. But my spiritual walk with God needs to be fiery and it needs to come alive. If that's you, I wanted to mention to you and let you know that there is no soft or easy awakening. Why is this? Because an awakening is an awareness to the very holiness of God. The very holiness of God. You know something that we've been discussing and we even discussed it in Bible school is that when you start talking about God's attributes or you talk about God's character, people oftentimes fall into a half half coma. Suddenly, there isn't a lot of interest. There's nothing that really kind of fires them up. But then what you do is you start talking about something in regards to their felt needs, or you talk about them, suddenly they get fired up. And this is the hallmark of the modern church not talking about God and who He is, His holiness, His character, and His attributes, how He is just, how He is loving yet filled with wrath, these attributes of God. You know, this is the hallmark of the modern church. That's no longer the subject. The subject matter is, how can we uh, survive in this world that we live in? <laughs> and... Uh, how can I uh, become the better version of self? If it's about self, I bet you, you can, if you ever had to teach, you will recognize this, generally speaking, and, and I'm not specifically so speaking about us, our small congregation, but you would see people come alive when it's about them. But when you start talking about the attributes of God, there's kind of like a daze that comes over them. And this is the hallmark of the modern-day church. <clears throat> Because an awakening is not an awakening to self. A true awakening is an awakening to who God is. That is a true awakening. A true awakening is having an actual grasp on what it means that He is holy, having an actual grasp of what it means that He's good, because that's a fearful thought the fact that God is good. He is a good judge, and He will leave not one crime unpunished, but He will punish every crime to its fullest degree. And when we understand who God is, and we know Him for who He is, at that point, there will be a tremendous um, awakening that will stir within a person's soul. When we see Him for who He is, that's when we will see how far we have fallen short of His glory. That is what it means, for we've all fallen short of the glory of God. But if we know God for who He is, we will see how far fallen we are, and there will be a stirring and an awakening. There will be a conviction that will fall upon a people, and they will be cut to the heart, they will be cut to the core, and they will have to... Come alive unto God at that point. It's when we realize how far we have short, fallen short of God's glory. It's when we re- recognize our great need for His saving arm that is not too short. So when awakening comes, sin that has long been tolerated and long been excused is suddenly brought to the surface to a person. And He can no longer hide it. He can no longer ignore it. He can no longer deny it. How many of you have ever been there at some point in your life where you go like, I simply cannot ignore this anymore. It's in, it's in my life and, and this is something that has to be addressed and it has to be addressed now. When an awakening comes, a sudden deep desire to be clean before God rises up in the hearts of a people. When an awakening comes, just like the perfume rises after after the perfume jar is broken. I don't know if you've ever done this, if this has ever happened, you've dropped the perfume jar, it breaks, and suddenly that perfume penetrates the whole entire environment. In the same way, it's when that person is crushed, when the person is broken, because they have just recognized the holiness of God, and they are broken over who they are. They convict- their hearts are convicting them. At that point, in the same way, that person's desire for God just rises up and starts permeating his life. Have you ever seen, and you have, you've seen the difference between yourself when there's been a great desire for God in comparison to when there's been no desire for God. And you can see that in other people too. You can see somebody growing in their desire for God, but it's always in the exact same degree as to their knowledge of God that they're coming into. Because as they come into the knowledge of God, His holiness, so they are humbled and broken before God and that fragrance of their desire for God now starts permeating their life. No unbroken man has ever desired God. It doesn't happen. They do not have the fragrance of humility. They do not have the fragrance of a need for God. They do not have the fragrance of life. That jar has first to be broken, and when it breaks, that fragrant fragrance fills their life. So, This is what happens when people experience an awakening. And this is exactly what, uh, what was happening during the awakening at Watergate, east gate of, um, or the east side of Jerusalem, here in Nehemiah. Those who heard the word of the Lord were cut to the core. There was a new awareness of their sin and the need for God. Their weeping would ultimately be turned to joy. However, it will always first start with a deep conviction of sin against an indescribably holy and beautiful God. So as we look at this text, I want us to highlight these three elements. These three elements enables this awakening that we see in the book of Nehemiah. So I I want to be as clear as I possibly can, because I want this to be cemented in our hearts. And here's why. Because there isn't a person here that won't go through a time in their life where they go, why am I so dry? Why do I feel so distant from God? I have drifted from God and I need an awakening within myself. I need an awakening within my family. I need an awakening within my church. If that's you, which every single one of us do go through those seasons, we have to understand what God was showing us right here in the book of Nehemiah. Because this is the kind of spiritual awakening every true community, church community, should be praying for. The first thing is the spiritual hunger of the people. The spiritual hunger of the people. So what I want to do is I want to walk through that portion that Han just read. I want to start with Nehemiah chapter 8. Let's start with verse 1. It says, quote, "...and the people gathered as one man." and the people gathered as one man. Commentators estimate that there were as little as 30,000 and as many as 50,000 people that gathered there as one man. They gathered there as one man, meaning they were gathered at the water gate on the side of Jerusalem in one place, with one mind, with one purpose in mind. You know, the time was the seventh day of the seventh month, it says, when they gathered, which is, in fact, equivalent to our New Year. That was the the Jewish New Year calendar. And it was like people wanted to start the New Year right with God. They wanted to have a fresh start. And I'm sure every single one of us, if we have to search our hearts, we too could say, you know what, I would love to have a fresh start, or I would love to have... A brand new beginning. I would love to have another chance at this. Again, I don't feel like I've been completely faithful. Uh, I, I need to do this right. And we want the Word of God brought to us. This is the time for us to draw a line in the sand and say, let's start. So it was a time for the public ministry of the Word. And these Multiple, uh, multiplied thousands of people were gathered and asked Ezra, who was a scribe, kind of like a priest, asked Ezra to bring the book of the law, to bring the book of the law. So the question that came to mind was, why did they ask Ezra, the scribe, to bring the book of the law? Why not anybody else, but in fact, Ezra? Think about it. There were up to about 50,000 people. Everybody, call Ezra. Call Ezra. Let him bring the book. Now, scribe also copied the Word of God, but he was like a priest, right? And so, here they were all calling for him. The question is, why were they calling for Ezra specifically? Because they knew that the one man who knew the Word of God better than anybody else was, in fact, Ezra. Because for fourteen years, Ezra had, or fourteen years before that point in time, Ezra had returned to the promised land from the Babylonian captivity, and he made a commitment that we find in Ezra seven verse ten, and everybody knew about his commitment. And I think this is where we go wrong at times. I think I think what we do is we encourage people to make commitments to the Lord. Now, of course, your commitment is to the Lord, but it ought to be in front of someone that can hold you accountable to the commitment you made, right? (laughs) And so everybody knew that Ezra had made this commitment. It says in Ezra chapter 7, verse 10, For Ezra had set his heart to study the law, the law of the Lord, and to practice it. So in other words, first it says, For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord, and then it says to practice the law of the Lord, and then to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. So he made these three commitments, to study scriptures, to practice scriptures, and to declare scriptures. So we know that Ezra had been digging into the word of God, and now on this occasion, they called for Ezra to bring the book. This is, what is, this is what is so desperately needed in the churches today. People so hungry for the word of God that they would cry out to the pastor and say, bring us the word, pastor. I want to hear scriptures. I want to hear the teaching of the scriptures. Like Ezra, he studied the scriptures, he obeyed the scriptures, and then he declared it to them. He taught them in the scriptures. And this is what, uh, what we need if we're talking about a people that is... That is has spiritual hunger. Spiritual hunger. Today we have this idea of people being spiritual, but not scriptural, and that is unbiblical. (laughs) You cannot be spiritual and not care for scriptures. It is the scriptural individual, and his degree that he loves the scriptures to which that same degree is he spiritual. And so, this is what we are calling for spiritual hunger. That was the first thing that was very evident in this Great Awakening. I do not know that there is a Great Awakening throughout history where it wasn't started with the hunger for God. I don't think there is one. They won't, I don't believe there can be one, not in your household, not in your own life. A hunger for the things of God. And when we talk about an appetite or a hunger for things, oftentimes, you know what parents do to children? They say, all right, you can't have any candy. Why not? Because we're about to eat. Well, candy doesn't fill them, right? But it does take away the appetite. I remember when I moved to the United States in 2000, I didn't really have an appetite. We weren't big on chocolates in South Africa. And there was always on Tina's desk all these chocolates, M&M's, and uh, I would never touch them because I just didn't have an appetite for it, but every now and then I would take M&M and I would actually just, um, you know, Tina always says, don't say that because it just sounds so ridiculous, but I remember just biting into an M&M and I didn't really like it, but then eventually, uh, I went to a desk so often, <laughs> I took an M&M, then I took couple M&Ms and after a while I was having handfuls of (laughs) M&Ms because that sugar I mean you grow you grow an appetite for that and I would say that the problem here is that the reason people don't have an appetite for the things of God is because they have too much entertainment going on they've got so much sugar so much candy they are so busy they, they simply have no appetite for the things of God. Now, I'm not Amish, but I can tell you prior to that, you know, the truth that they attempted to grab onto, but then they grabbed onto the wrong thing. They grabbed onto, onto moralism, but the truth that they really try to grab onto is don't get constipated with the things of the world. Because the old Puritans weren't part of the world. They had such an incredible appetite for the things of God. But guess what? They pretty much lived separate lives. Now, I'm not, I'm not believing that we should, we should all like move out of the world, right? And we should go to Shipshawana and start up our own county. Cal- That's not what I'm suggesting, right? We are not of this world, even though we are in this world, but you are not of this world. That's why you, you can't enjoy the same entertainment the world necessarily enjoys. You can't fill yourself with the same things that the world fills themselves with. I'm yeah. telling you, entertainment, comfort, convenience, all these things that we, we sometimes feel like we have a right to, those things... have really given us spiritual constipation. We have no appetite for the things of God because we are so glued to the things of this world. And we should unravel ourselves. Again, spiritual hunger is the very first sign, is the very first truth of the person about to have a spiritual awakening. There is not going to be a spiritual awakening just because there's a tent, there's an evangelist, and there's a date set with a great band. That is emotionalism. That's just a stirring. Now, I'm not saying that you can't have an emotion towards the Lord. But trust me, if you have an emotion without a spiritual hunger, it is not of God, right? There's all this excitement, but there's no hunger for the things of God. So I would say that as we have to starve ourselves from the things we ought not to have appetites for in the flesh, so exactly the same is true. We ought to starve ourselves for things in this world that takes away our spiritual appetite, our appetite for spiritual things, to the point where we too say, I would love, I just want to get into the Word of God. I'm waiting for the day when people would start begging, Pastor, Can we start the service earlier, please? And can we end the service later? We need to hear the Word of God. (coughs) I'm waiting for the day where I hear, Pastor, can we have less psychology and more doctrine, please? (coughs) Excuse me. Yeah, I'll have some more. (coughs) I'm waiting for that day. And every single one of us, This is for every single one of us. I am not talking at you. I'm talking with you about us. Because we can get excited about a lot of different stuff. But if there's no hunger for the things of God, we have run very fast into the wrong direction. You know, well, there's a tiny little thing that just goes into the side of your throat, and you go like, how did that just happen? So the truth is, people who truly love God and tru- uh, actually truly love doctrine. Let me just make that point very clear. People who truly love God truly love doctrine. And now, I don't want to jump on a bandwagon or anything, okay? And that's why, I don't know if you've noticed, but whenever something big happens in the country, I usually try to steer away from it, because uh, I don't like the fact that the tail's always wagging the dog, right? We just preach the word. And the word addresses every single issue that you see happening in the world. But so, the, a lady that, that um, <clears throat> used to be in the church where I was a, an assistant pastor to, of course, then she becomes a pastor, right? And, and I'm just reading um, yesterday. That's why Tina and I didn't sleep last night. But we're just reading through how Christians today, especially Christians in pulpits and women Christians, women pastors uh, that we now know that ought not to be in the pulpit like promoting abortion and just slaundering people who are pro-life as if it's an unloving position to take unbelievable but what I'm trying to say there is when I when I um, mentioned to somebody by the way God hates the one who sheds innocent blood God doesn't love him. The Bible is very clear God hates him. Now, I don't know what I'm talking about. So, okay, well, explain that scripture then to me. Well, that scripture doesn't mean anything. That's just one scripture out of many other scriptures of love. The point is, the person who truly loves God, truly loves God's Word, cannot violate God's Word, any of it, that's why when you read the word election, there it is. <laughs> when you read the word uh, predestination, there it is. When you read that God hates, there it is. You can't violate anything, all right? And when God holds people accountable for not choosing Him, there it is. Do you believe it? All of it, because they have to. I'm not going to violate this or that, right? And so the, the point I'm trying to make here is, please, don't buy into any person's passion for the Lord if they don't have the same passion for His Word or for doctrine. Let me just say doctrine. What is doctrine? Doctrine is when you say, okay, well, salvation. What is the biblical teaching regarding the subject of salvation? Well, here it is. Okay, well, that's the doctrine of salvation, right? What's the biblical teaching regarding the grace of God? Well, here's what the Bible says about the grace of God. Therefore, this is the doctrine of grace. So, that's what doctrine is. So, if people can't have, if people don't have an affinity and a love and a passion for doctrine, for accurate doctrine, they don't have a passion or affinity for God at all. There is no such person who, lo- who has love for God but has not love for his word. Anybody who has this passion, this passionate love, relationship with Abba, Abba, Fa, oh, Daddy, Father. Just, please, you know, I really um, throw up easy, but that just really makes me sick to my stomach. Daddy, Father, Abba, Father, Yahweh, Daddy, God, Papa. If that person doesn't have that same kind of affection towards doctrine of Scripture, then, then I'm, I'm convinced those are the ones Jesus said, I'll spit you out of my mouth. Don't believe him. Do not believe Him. They're liars. If they do not have an appetite for Scripture reading, if they don't have an appetite for the study of Scripture, if they, if they cannot have Scriptural conversations, everything with them is always shallow. Everything with is always something other than the Word of God. They cannot, ha- they cannot submit to Scripture. Well then, do not believe their love is for God. Their love is for their God. So there is a second distinction among those who truly love God. Not only do they absolutely love the Word of God, but there's something about the Word of God that they love. People who love God always concern themselves over what pleases God. If you love somebody, you are consumed with what pleases them, their desires, and their reputation. I love how Calvin said, even a dog barks when his master has been assailed. Yet, what we do is, we couldn't care how, not we, I'm just saying Christians today, they couldn't care how many verses somebody breaks. It's just, at least, let's just love them. Well, that's not how you love them, right? Because they certainly didn't love God right there. Even the dog will bark if, if somebody else did that to his master. The second distinction among those who truly love God are people who concern themselves over, God, what is it that you desire from me? What is it that you require from me? What is it that you have called me to? What is it that you have commanded me to do? So what I'm saying is this. People who love God loves His laws. I have seen this to be a very great distinction between people. People who love God loves His laws. They love His standards. Hearing a strong word is like fresh air to them. Wow, that was really good, yeah. Uh, so why are you crying? Oh, because I'm repenting over what I heard. But that was so good. Like a, a, a straight up word from God just sits so perfectly with them. No matter how much that word is disciplining them themselves. This is the person that loves God. Loves, that person loves God's laws, His standards, His principles, and His ways. People who love themselves only love God's promises. But those people are usually intolerant of God's laws. And this is a thing that's been so real to me. You talk to somebody about the Word of God and goes like, you go, wow, when we've been on vacation, connect with somebody and like, they know the Scriptures. Wow, you know, for God has great plans for me, to prosper me and not to harm me, to give me a future. This is awesome. This person knows the Scriptures. For God so loved the world that He gave Jesus and and. and, and I mean, they they can quote so many scriptures and after a while you go like, wait a minute. Has this person made any mention of one thing God has called them to actually do? (laughs) People who love themselves only love God's promises but are usually intolerant of God's laws. You see, somebody goes like, well, what's the law for? Well, God draws you to the law as a mirror so you could see how much you need salvation, he draws you to the law, so that you would run to Christ. For for uh, um, you would run to Christ, so you can find shelter, and then Christ will bring you back to the law. In order to sanctify you, so the first time you come to the law, so that you would know your need for salvation, the second time he will bring you to the law, so you can become more and more like him. But those who love themselves only love God's promises. But he who loves God loves all of God's word. So who are the spiritually hungry ones? Who are these spiritually hungry ones? How do I know if I have spiritual hunger? It's really easy for me to assess myself, and it should be easy for you to assess yourself. I ask the question, how urgent am I to get myself, to get by myself, with the Word of God. How urgent, how, how desperate do I want to get into Scriptures? And there's a deception, oftentimes with somebody like myself, <clears throat> I said to Tina, I always feel like, you know, um, I, I kind of run my week towards Wednesday night because we have both first years and second years, and both those subjects are pretty... Challenging for me. And um, then from Wednesday, Thursday morning, I, I start immediately and I work towards Friday because Friday we actually record what we have to edit for that Wednesday coming up. And then right after Friday night, Saturday morning, I start right again and I start working towards Sunday. And oftentimes, what you can do is you can fall into just studying scriptures, whether it be to deliver something or to argue somebody else or to, you know, uh, see, okay, where is. Where is the government wrong this time? You know, um, where in fact, what we need to do is we need to actually get the word of God for self. It's almost like that person sitting in, the, in, in church and it's always like, man, I wish, I wish this guy was here today or I wish my wife was here today and heard this or I wish my mom can hear this, you know. <laughs> when in fact, usually every single word is for them, right? <clears throat> so how do I know I have a spiritual hunger? See if I have a great need to get by myself with the scriptures just to see what God is saying. Not to see how I can argue somebody. I ask myself another question. How much do I love discussing scriptures during conversations? Like when I get with people. Do I have a desire to discuss scriptures with people? That's a sign of your spiritual hunger. I ask myself this question, how burdened am I when I encounter scriptural ignorance in other people? I realize right now my spiritual hunger level is pretty high when I go onto Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> I ask myself this question, how, how um, exciting it is for me when I see somebody else falling in love with scriptures. Uh, I'm so privileged. I love my job, just so you know. I go onto, I go onto, um, Kartra, which is our <clears throat> first year's page. And I'm able to read through everybody's questions and answers. And when I see somebody grabbing onto a truth, it just really does something inside of me. I'm just, I, I get so, so excited. And, um, uh, then I'm able to go to the second years, and, and it's just really wonderful to see people grab onto stuff or talk through things, or even when they don't understand something, at least I know that there's a wrestle. You know how somebody hasn't been conquered, is they're still wrestling through something, right? They're asking questions, and uh, <clears throat> so the question is, how urgent are you to get by yourself in scriptures? Uh, how much do you love discussing scriptures when you get with other people? How burdened are you when you see biblical ignorance in people around you? And how exciting is it for you when you see somebody else fall in love with scriptures? These are signs for me that shows me my spiritual temperature. You cannot measure spiritual temperature outside of scriptures, and you cannot measure spiritual temperature outside of your relationship to scriptures. So the only way to recognize a person's spiritual hunger is to recognize their appetite, their appetite for scripture so if we're going to have a revival like we see happen in Nehemiah chapter 8 it's going to be because the people sitting in these seats are crying out share with us the book we want to hear God speak we want to understand what God is calling us to what God requires of us so our conclusion in the first point of spiritual hunger is that spiritual hunger which is a hunger for scripture always precedes a spiritual awakening Never have one without it. The second thing we see what happened right here in Nehemiah chapter 8 is that they were confronted with the Word of God. They were confronted with the Scriptures. There isn't a time I read the Scriptures where it doesn't confront me. But there was a time in my life where I only read Scriptures in order to confront others. You you follow what I'm saying? (laughs) How do I read the Scriptures? This matters. Because if I don't have a personal conviction over what I'm reading, over myself, my own life, my marriage, my my children, my household, the church that I'm pastoring, the people that I'm ministering, if I don't have a conviction over how I'm doing what God requires of me, then what I'm doing is I'm basically reading the Scriptures for somebody else, not for myself. Nehemiah chapter 8 verse 2 says, And then Ezra the priest brought the law. Ezra the priest brought the law. Ezra prepared his entire life for this moment. God uh, has prepared the man for the moment, and He prepared the moment for the man. For 14 years, Ezra has been studying the Scriptures, drawing from it and understanding God's intentions regarding it. Then he submitted himself to scriptures by practicing and practicing and practicing to live according to these scriptures. And then he started teaching these scriptures and declaring God's truth to people. And now, here's his moment. Here's his moment. And in verse 3, Ezra reads to them the word. Nehemiah 8 verse 3 says, He read from it before the square, which was in front of the water gate from early morning until midday. In the presence of men and women, those who could understand, and all the people were attentive to the book of the law. They were attentive to the book of the law. Why? Because there was a spiritual hunger. You pay attention to the very thing you have an appetite for. Your attention always bends naturally to that thing, that you have fed yourself with over and over and over and over and over again, and you're wondering why you are, you, you are so alive to certain things and so dead to other things. is because of what you fed yourself on. What do you graze on all day? I think, for one, social media has been a major downfall as to why people aren't, don't have a great appetite for the things of God. now when it says that he read from it before the square in the presence of men and women those who could understand all the people who were attentive to the book of the law please don't imagine him reading the Bible in public like we do these days like Stephen Lawson says it's like the bland leading the bland <clears throat> now in Hebrew the word read that is used here is the word korah K-O-R-A, which means to cry aloud. It means to call aloud. Another term for it is to roar. Another one is to proclaim. Those are the terms used for this word Korah, and that's what he was doing. He was, in fact, in fact, proclaiming forth. He was roaring aloud the very principles of God the very laws of God. It is the same word that was used in J- Jonah chapter 3, verse 2, when Jonah cried out, In 40 days, Nineveh will be destroyed. That's the same word that was used when it said that he was reading the word of God to the people. He was passionate about it, declaring it, roaring it forth. In Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 3b, it says, And all the people were attentive to the book of the law. The word attentive here used in Hebrew means the turning of the ear, turning away from something to something else. When an awakening is taking place, you're going to start ignoring so many things in this world. Why? Because your attention is turning to what God is doing and what God is requiring of you. Pastors are told today that sermons need to be short because people have a problem with their attention span. You know, we went from writing books to reading books to reading blogs. Now then we read short emails, and after emails we started reading uh, text messages, and after text messages it's a tweet. And then after tweet, now it's, now it's just like an emoji, a facial expression. This is now how we communicate. We've gone all the way back, full circle, right? <laughs> how are, We're just like the cavemen. We just don't write it in rock anymore. We just kind of, here's a face for you. So pastors are told, you know what, your, minister, your your sermon should be shorter because people don't have attention spans anymore. Just keep it short. I was just wondering why a person can sit through a two-hour movie. You know, oh, people have attention spans. You see, it's not a problem with their attention. It's a problem with their heart. It's what they no longer, no longer like to hear or want to hear or desire. They can watch a two-and-a-half-hour movie. How long is that movie that just came out, this Tom Cruise movie? Don't know. Okay. Anyway. Yeah. People of all ages are sitting wired because it's entertaining and it's something they love and they have a desire for. When it comes to the things of God especially when you start talking about the attributes of God. People don't have attention span. Talk about them about themselves, like, all right, tell me more. So you have to measure yourself and see how you relate in those terms. The truth is that people's hearts are turned away instead of turned toward God. Their hearts have been hardened by sin instead of being broken because of their realization of their sin. And the very same sun that hardens clay is the very same sun that melts wax. Wow. When I I heard Stephen Lawson say that, and it was such a reality to me. Think about it. The very same sun that hardens clay is the very same sun that melts wax. Have you noticed that when the gospel is preached, one walks out more hard than they walked in, and the other one walks out softer than what they walked in? The gospel will harden the heart of one person and soften the heart of another person. It's always like that. I'll prove it to you. Take a word from God out of scriptures and post it on Facebook. (laughs) You'll see how that word of God just causes that Pharaoh's heart to grow hard and he's grinding his teeth and the other person is like, oh, that's so beautiful. <laughs> the very same son. Nehemiah chapter, five, chapter 8 verse 5 says, Ezra opened the book in the, in the sight of the Lord of all the people. Excuse me. Leave. He opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood. All the people instinctively rose to their feet in order to show reverence and awe for the very word of God because they realized that when the Bible speaks, God speaks. Nehemiah chapter 8 verse 6 says, Then Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. This is an amazing thing. Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. Ezra reading the word of God was a coronation service. God was being crowned right there in their midst where God was being exalted, magnified, and glorified, Ezra was blessing God. He was magnifying the name of God as he was reading the Scriptures and explaining the Word of God. You see, there will never be a true awakening from God when man is exalted and lifted up instead. There is never a true move of God of any kind unless God is the one being magnified, glorified in their midst and when God is lifted up. That's why today um, um, it is the most popular thing to minister from a pulpit psychology. It is the most popular thing. Why? Because it stirs people, because it's about them, and it's, it gives them a vision for self. <clears throat> but they cannot be an awakening when that is what I'm looking for. Now, I'm not... I'm not You know, dissing motivational speaking. I'm not dissing any kind of motivational program that any company owner needs to have for his team and get his team all to see the same vision and get on the same page and all of the above. All I'm telling you is there can never be an awakening if that's what the church is doing. God has to be enthroned, crowned, exalted, lifted up, And glorified, he needs to be magnified. And we see that Ezra used the law of God to bless God and to magnify God with. Verse 6 says, Then Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands. Then they bowed low and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. They lifted their hands to heaven because they knew that the message did not come from man, but it came from God. They received the word from God. They lifted their hands to heaven because they were offering themselves to God as they heard God's requirements of them. You see, the verse reads, they, uh, then they bowed low and worshipped the Lord. This is so important. They bowed low and they worshipped the Lord. To me, uh, I'm so touched by this. You see, it was, it was this high theology, the very pure law of God exalting God with his law. It was this high theology. it wasn't playing games, it wasn't trying to trying to uh, miss, uh, you know, run around all the hard parts of scriptures. No, he just preached the Word of God confidently, with all clarity. and it was this very high theology that drove the high uh, view of God. High theology, high theology, excuse me drives people's view of God. Low theology drives people's view of self. High theology drives people's view of God. High theology, they were were down to the ground, they were humble. Why? Because it's their high theology of God that drove their high praises of God. The opposite is true. Those who have a limited theology always have a difficult time praising God. Unless the music is just right, they can't praise God. The deeper people go down into the true doctrine of God's Word, the higher you will find their praises become. When I am lackadaisical in praising God, that is the the red light that goes on. That is the red flag that goes up that says, I've lost sight of the theology of who God really is and what He requires. I mean, if you know who God is, you can't help but praise Him. You can't help but worship Him. So what I'm saying here is never fear hearing a hard word from Scripture. Never fear hearing a hard word from Scripture. Never fear hearing a demanding word from Scripture. Your spirit loves it. Because a hard word produces a soft heart. It's, it's that way. While a soft word always produces a hardened heart. We see that across, an Amer- across America, that, that gospel-ignorant teaching produces gospel-hardened hearts. Gospel-ignorant teaching produces gospel-hardened hearts. If you look at the state of society and you go like, why are these Christians? All these Christians I know. I spent 15 years with these people in the same church getting excited about the same songs, all running forward and giving our $1,000 seed. All of us. These people, I remember them really clearly. And I'm wondering, like, what in the world just happened to them? Why are they so hard? Why are they so hardened? Because gospel-ignorant teaching produces gospel-hardened hearts. Nehemiah chapter 8 verse 7b, it says, The Levites explained the law to the people while the people remained in their place. You see, along with the reading of the Word of God came the explanation and interpretation of the Word of God. Then verse 8 says, They read from the book, from the law of God, translating, making it clear, to give the sense so that they so that they understood the reading. In other words, he declared the word, and then there were these Levites that went and explained the word to everybody. In every spiritual awakening, we see there's always been, usher, the, the, we, there's always been this kind of bold biblical teaching, teaching that had great clarity. This is what took place under Luther, Hus, Calvin, Tyndale, and the rest during the Reformation. They were bold, they were articulate, teachers of the Word of God. That is what happened during the Golden Puritan Age. They were simple, but they were articulate preachers of the Word of God. You can pick up any book from Bunyan or any of these Puritans. You will see what I'm talking about. That's what happened during the Great Awakening with Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield. They were bold preachers of the Word of God, and they clearly articulated what God required from man. That's what happened during the Victorian age with Charles Spurgeon and with J.C. J. Ryle. These people penetrated people's hearts with a clearly articulated doctrine from Scriptures. And that must happen today again. And then finally we see is the conviction from God's Word that fell on the people. In verse 9 of Nehemiah chapter 8, we see then Nehemiah, who was the governor and Ezra, the priest and scribe and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God do not mourn or weep for all the people were weeping when they heard the words of the law Ezra got up there he declared the word of God as it was written and people just started weeping why because Romans 3:20 says for, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Romans chapter 7, 7 says, I would not have come to know sin except through the law, for I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. What I'm trying to say is that nobody, nobody skips and giggles through the narrow gate, all the way down the narrow path to life. If God is to send us a great awakening, it's because we have realized that God is holy, God is just, God is an all-consuming fire, and because of it, we are desperate in desperate need for Jesus to save us. I want to close with this. May God help and teach us how to guard our hearts from the hardening of sin. May God help us guard ourselves from the distractions of this world. May God help us guard us from having appetites that causes us to no longer have an appetite for the things of God. May God protect us. And so allow His word to cut our hearts. May, may we also be broken to the point where the fragrance will permeate, the fragrance of life will permeate our lives. So that is, is my prayer that we at Christ Nation will, will carry out. All these, and that we will cry before God. We need, to, we need the word above all else. Give us the word. Give us the law of God. Amen. Let's pray. Amen. Father, thank you so much for your word. I pray, Father God, that <clears throat> today we will make this ours individually. Because nothing happens corporately if it doesn't start individually. And Lord, may we measure ourselves just how spiritually hungry we are for you. And may we look at how we come to Scriptures. Do we go to Scriptures to hear from you? And may we measure ourselves to see if, in fact, we have this passionate love for you that we claim we do. May we look at ourselves, and may we see if we are, in fact, the ones that have... that have eaten from the world to the degree where we have no appetite, with no vision, with no desire, with no passion for what you are doing in this earth. Lord, protect us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.